0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Big Tent on KRBX 89.9 Caldwell, Boise. I'm your host, Jackie Kettler, and I'm here with my co-host, Jen Schneider and Luke Fowler. Luke is learning the boards today, so he may be a bit quieter than usual.
1: Yes, and if you hear any dead air, it's all my fault.
0: (laughs) Well, you might remember
2: that this is one of our New Year's resolutions for the show, is that all of us learn how to work the equipment that allows us to talk to you on the air. So that's what we're doing today.
0: And we may not all be the best at technical elements, so...
2: (laughs) We're mostly uh, word nerds, but
1: that's fine. That's fine. yes. That's why I work in academia and don't have a real <laughs> job.
2: <laughs> it's a real job.
0: Uh, so one thing we're going to start off discussing today, because the legislature came into session this week, and so we heard the Governor Little's State of the State address on Monday. The legislature is now overway. So so thought we would talk a little bit about that here at the start of the show. I mean, given that the federal
2: government is still shut down, right? We can focus our attention on state politics for a little bit.
0: Well, and that's an interesting point. As we've seen more gridlock at the federal level, there's an argument that it's actually the state states are where real policy is being made, impactful policy that, that is affecting citizens because our, our federal government just isn't doing as much as it once was.
2: It probably doesn't make our friends who are federal employees feel much better right now, but it, it's like an important point when we think about the functioning of government.
0: It's also a challenge, though, for the state governments uh, and local governments with this shutdown n- not an end in sight to kind of figure out funding and programs. So that's probably on the mind of legislators as they come back.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Jackie, you're somebody who pays a lot of attention to state politics. You've been d- doing legislative previews for <laughs> weeks now. Um, but we're going to ask you to go ahead and give us an update. So, what are the things that are on your mind? What are you? looking forward to? What are you curious about? What are you thinking about?
0: Well, one thing that I think, and it shouldn't be a surprise, is that education is going to be a major focus of this session. It was something that Governor Little talked a lot about throughout his campaign, in his inauguration speech, and his State of the State Address. Ta- the top spending priorities are education related. And is that
2: primarily K-12, through then? Are we...
0: You know, there's a lot K-12, but also higher ed and technical, um, like post, mm-hmm. post-secondary post technical programs are also a big part of kind of the programs he laid out, which, you know, he's talking about long-term investments, helping, you know, invest in, in children's and grandchildren's future. I think having a variety of education, you know, at different levels makes sense.
2: So that could mean any number of things, of course, of teacher pay, I think, continues to be a major issue. I have a husband who's a high school teacher, so I can attest to that. Uh, but also, we have a lot of crumbling infrastructure, particularly in rural areas. We have um, a lot of technology needs. Are those the sort of things that we're talking about when we talk about education
0: priorities? Like, there were some of those, some of those things, and uh, I mean, some a lot of it was kind of on the teacher pay side, um, literacy programs. He wants to double the spending for a literacy program to really help um, for younger children be able to be prepared um, throughout elementary school, uh, but. Yeah, there were some other elements as well, focusing a little bit more on some of the technical elements. Um, I don't remember much stuff on kind of the infrastructure side, but a lot of that kind of comes more at the local level anyways, I think.
2: So when you say the technical elements, is that about sort of preparing folks for workforce, like um, technical preparation, technical degrees, that sort of thing? Yeah. So
0: like for people who may not want to pursue um, a college degree, um, other options. But some of it also look like technical skill development for high schoolers. Mm -hmm. So then when you graduate high school, you have a you know, you have these skills um, to prepare like a workforce and skilled labor is really needed across the country. And so that makes sense to me that this would be an area of education that gets some focus.
2: So lots of investment in STEM and then probably what we called Votech when I was coming up. I'm sure it has better, a better uh, title now. Um, any discussion about pre-K? I know that's something that Idaho is consistently sort of behind on is, is that sort of funding or investment. Has that come up at all?
0: So not yet, at least not from the governor's side. They noted that the literacy program funding would be for um, K on kindergarten on but that with policy change it could be expanded to other programs so at this point at least the governor's office doesn't seem to be proposing pre-k I expect there'll still be some discussions of it in Mm -hmm. the legislature it's an area where we're seeing a lot of interest we've seen cities implement pre-k programs that look like they've been pretty successful so I imagine that'll be a discussion that starts and probably we won't necessarily see anything uh, happen this session but maybe in, in another session or two
2: and then something we were really keeping an eye on in the last year was whether or not higher ed was going to get reorganized in the state like maybe there would be some sort of you know like other states break out their pre-k board of education activities from their college or higher ed activities maybe they have a board of regents for example do you think that's something that Little's going to take up um, from otter and continue on from otter and pursuing that
0: Uh, Maybe, at least not much discussion of it yet. Um, So any discussion this session looks like it'd come from the legislature, um, legislators themselves. Um, But I do think that's something kind of on the radar um, uh, that but not a whole lot of discussion about it yet.
2: Okay, so education, a major um, area that we can expect to see a lot of discussion around. What else?
0: Um, so corrections, we've got really full prisons. We're sending prisoners to Texas, you know, like, and we've got and something that Governor Little has brought up that you know we don't want to use prisons for like mental health treatment or, and so trying to figure out ways. And and the Board of Corrections had asked for fi- or proposed that they need five hundred million for a new prison. The Little's um, budget, the executive budget does not include funding for that, um, does suggest a um, transition kind of uh, expansion of beds for that type of entity and expanding beds in a, a work camp. Um, but instead, it sounds like there wants to, there's, and legislators have mentioned it as well, taking a look at sentencing um, other types of programs to help not just try to expand prison capacity, but actually, you know, keep people from, from, from in prison that maybe shouldn't be there.
2: I mean, what's so interesting about the this- that in particular is that that is one issue that has had traction at the federal level, sort of one notch in the belt of the Trump administration, I think, has been criminal justice reform, which was just recently passed, had widespread bipartisan support. So it will be interesting to see if that sort of plays out at the local level as well.
0: Yeah, and if we see some of the same bipartisan work um, at the at the state level, um, it does seem like the committee and, you know, committees include some some of both parties that are interested in not just expanding the number of beds in prisons, but finding other solutions as well.
2: Um, yeah it's one of those issues where you feel like uh, regardless of where you come from or what kind of person you are everybody is affected by this like in some way we all have family members or something it's sort of like the the opioid epidemic in that regard so and it seems like it's something that will have popular support.
0: Another thing that um, the littles budget included was more funding for opioid um, uh, treatment prevention these types of programs they really expanding trying to reduce um, levels of addiction and deal with that issue, again, as part of an idea of trying to help keep some people out of prison. Great. Well, thanks for
2: uh, guiding us through that, Jackie. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the push towards inclusion and diversity in higher ed. That's something that all of us have been thinking about and working on uh, at Boise State. And uh, we had a a speaker, Tim Wise, come to the university this week. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the things he introduced us to. Um, We'll be right back.
1: Hi, this is Cecil Baldwin from Welcome to Night Vale. You're tuned in to Radio Boise, your source for music and public affairs programming in Boise and beyond.
0: All right. Welcome back to The Big Tent on KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise on Radio Boise. Um, I'm your uh, co-host of The Big Tent, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my fellow (laughs) co-hosts, Jen Schneider and Luke Fowler. Um, And we're going to transition to talking about issues of inclusivity and um, diversity. And Jen, I understand that you went to a pretty interesting training um, earlier this week on the issue. That's right.
2: So anti-racism activist Tim Wise. He's somebody who has worked on issues related to racism and diversity for decades now really since the 1960s Uh, He came and gave an all day training at Boise State. So first of all, that was remarkable. He gave a two hour keynote in the morning, and then did a three, three or four hour workshop in the afternoon. And the man does not stop talking. He is like a force of nature. He's incredible. Um, Some of you listeners may have seen him on viral videos that have gone around. He's, I think, the uh, way I knew him before I went to this workshop this week was through some um, videos that circulated on YouTube where he talked about white privilege. And he's sort of very good about bringing in his own experiences as a white Jewish man who grew up um, in the South. So I I would attribute him with really um, popularizing the term white privilege, which I think sort of burst on the scene just in the past few years in a popular sense. So, you know, very interesting to hear him talk about inclusion and diversity in um, higher ed settings this week.
0: That's great. Um, Yeah, this is an issue that I think is an issue across the country but I think it being in Idaho in a less diverse but diversifying state it is kind of a challenge to think about how to do this well.
2: Yeah and I mean um, the idea of white privilege is something that I was introduced um, to in grad school what 20-25 years ago but I think has become so politicized in recent years um, particularly since the election of Donald Trump but maybe even before and White privilege, I think for, for Tim Wise and for people like him, refers to the idea that um, in a country where whiteness gives you access to certain types of opportunity, um, even if you yourself were disadvantaged in other ways as a white person, maybe you grew up poor, or maybe you are not able-bodied, that whiteness allows you access to certain things that people of color would not have people of color may have other forms of advantage. That was something he really wanted us to make sure we understood, is that all of us have some sort of advantage relative to other people, but that in the United States today, white, white privilege often functions um, functions that way. So, I thought that was really interesting and, and Luke, this is something that you and I have chatted about over, over the years because we, we sort of come at this from different perspectives, but you always remind me that inclusion and diversity doesn't always just refer to, to race and ethnicity
1: yeah I mean, I think uh, something that we've talked extensively about is uh, the inclusion of different ideas and this being a marketplace of ideas, right um, that it's not just about uh, hitting quota systems on, on different you know boxes, but us actually coming together with diverse perspectives on things and using that to come to create better uh, outcomes and, and better ideas, right um, so it's not just about uh, like having that that college poster where you have all the faces and there's like the token black guy on there that shows that you're diverse. It's actually about embracing that diversity and talking to each other.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's a really important <laughs> argument, and especially in the university setting. I think we want our students to have, be exposed to a diversity of ideas, and I mean, from my perspective, that's one of the purposes of getting um, a college degree is that yeah. you're asked to think about things in a way that you hadn't thought about them before. It's an opportunity for transformation. At the same time, I think if we only talk about diversity of ideas, it's really easy for our institutions not to change at all and to stay pretty white, right? Because I think it would be pretty um, pretty easy to argue, well, okay, yeah, we do have a very white faculty. It's hard to recruit people of color to a, a state like Idaho. Um but we have a diversity of opinions and viewpoints among those white folks, so good enough. Um, and I think, frankly, that's probably not good enough. It's not, not good enough for our students anymore. It's not what our society needs, and so we seem to be moving in sort of in some, some new directions. Um, but this conversation that we're having right now, Luke, you and me, where we have these different um, definitions of what counts as <laughs> diversity and inclusion, I think are, are really central, and they're the kinds of conversations that are happening across the culture.
1: Well, uh, I mean, I I 100% agree, and I mean, it's really about um, thinking deeper about what we mean by diversity and inclusion, um, and moving beyond just kind of the those throwing accusations back at, and forth at each other uh, about racism and all these type of things. Um, but really embracing the idea that there are a lot of different people and there's a lot of different perspectives, and just because you think differently than me doesn't mean that your opinion's not valid. Um, and I think that's really the, the important part of that, particularly in the uh, fake news error and the uh, polarization that we see in partisanship and all this other kind of stuff, is the idea that we have to embrace each other's ideas. Um, you don't have to agree with people. You don't have to like what they say, but you should at least give them the respect to listen to them. <laughs>
2: I mean, uh, absolutely, I, we're on the same page with that. I think that where it becomes tricky and where universities are struggling to thread the needle right now is that um, many of our universities, and I think Boise State included, really suffer from not having very diverse uh, faculty. We're, I think we have a more diverse student body than we have faculty. It's it's tough to retru- re- recruit faculty of color here. So so it's sort of a cart before the horse problem, or chicken the egg problem. Do we push to get a lot more diversity in terms of faculty, whether that's race, ethnicity, able-bodiedness, you name it, um, and then sort of start to create a more inclusive environment? Or do we push now to, to make things more welcoming and to be thinking more broadly about these issues so that we can entice, recruit, and then retain those folks? And I think that's something universities have not done a good job of figuring out yet.
1: Well, that's a, a really unique unique challenge in academia because it is a chicken and the egg thing. Um, because when you don't have, say, diverse communities at the undergrad level, you don't have diverse communities at the graduate level, you don't then don't have them in PhDs, then you don't have a faculty pool from which you can hire from. Um, so, like, how do we deal with that? Um, how do we start to... If we argue that with more diverse faculties we can then are, uh, recruit more diverse undergrads, how do we find more diverse faculties when there are just not a lot of people that honestly aren't old white guys that have PhDs and are qualified to do our jobs? Um, and that's just a reality of this. Now, of course, those things have changed over time. Um, luckily, there's been a lot of people that have worked hard to, to recruit and encourage people that aren't old white guys to do this job. Um, but I mean, it still is a reality. So it is a chicken and the egg, egg problem. And I, it, the truth is, you there's not one solution, right? It's you have to come through, uh, come at it from every different angle, um, in the hopes that those things all cumulatively are going to work over time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I know we have colleagues who would say, gosh, then the institution really needs to work on ideological diversity as well. You know, a majority of college professors identify as politically liberal. Um, That doesn't mean they're all indoctrinating students in liberal ideology or that they can't teach a variety of things in interesting ways. But that's something that we would want to pay attention to with diversity as well moving forward. So all of these conversations moving through my head as I was listening to Tim Wise, who challenged us to think about our privilege and um, to think creatively about how we might diversify our institutions of higher ed this week. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to give Jackie a chance to catch her breath and stop coughing. (laughs) And um, when we come back, we're going to talk about another local issue, and that is the issue of transportation in Boise. So stay tuned here on The Big Tent. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, this is Bree, psychic death witch. And this is Emily, regular witch. <laughs> this is Taco <laughs> Cat. And we're Taco Cat. <laughs> You're listening to Radio Boise eighty-nine point nine and ninety-three point five Fm Community Radio for Boise and beyond. All right, welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise KRBX eighty nine point nine FM, Caldwell, Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler. You made it. I know. <laughs> I've Managed to pick up yet another cold, uh, but I've I've survived. So hopefully I can stick through this last segment here with Jen Schneider and Luke Valor, all of us at the School of Public Service at Boise State. And Jen, I understand that you've been doing some community conversations and and listening um, about things that citizens are concerned about in the Community?
2: Yeah, so starting last spring, I had this awesome opportunity to work with the city of Boise to organize some large community meetings. Um, and they started out being just about the topic of growth, um, sort of trying to get a sense of what people were most concerned about as Boise is the fastest growing city in the nation by lots of measures, uh, what people are excited about, what is most on their mind, what they're angry about, et cetera. And um, I've talked about this on the show before, but the number one thing people at those meetings were concerned about was affordable housing. Um, they see, for example, their aging parents sort of being priced out of their homes because of property taxes, or maybe they have college um, kids who've graduated from college who, who can't afford housing in Boise and who are leaving as a result, so that's something that's really top of mind for people. But the second um, biggest issue for people was transportation, so I thought today we could spend a little time talking about transportation in the Valley. Um, Far and away, uh, there was a lot of concern. for folks about congestion. And I think if you've driven around Boise at all in the last six months, you've probably encountered a lot of uh, construction. Um, But people are also really worried about parking. They're really interested in building mass transportation and in creating communities that are bikeable and walkable. So what have your experiences been with um, navigating the city in the last uh, few months?
0: I mean, so we moved here from Houston, which, of course, is very big, has lots of traffic. So it was just wonderful when we moved here five years ago. It was like, oh, it's so easy. But you live a place long enough, you start to notice and get frustrated by even minor traffic compared to what maybe other cities experience. And, yeah, I, we moved over the summer, too, and I struggle. I feel like there is no efficient route to drive to campus and so every day I'm like I feel like this should be quicker commute why is it taking as long as it is yeah it's
2: so funny for me personally when people complain about traffic in Boise because I lived in Los Angeles for a while and (laughs) then in Denver for a very long time and I'm like even when it's bad quote bad here it's nothing compared to the, to those cities until you've sat on i-70 for several hours trying to get home from skiing you, you don't know what you're talking about
1: uh so as y'all know i live off of state street um and if you've been <laughs> off of state street Anytime time in the last year. It's a year. mess. I, I mean, <laughs> what I really just wish is that you they would s- finish one project before they start the next one that's like a mile down the road. So you're like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah, this one's almost done. Uh, oh, wait, they're going to mess up the road and it's 100 feet down the road. Uh, so, yes, I just never, ever escape the traffic. Um, my hope of all hopes is that when they get all of this done sometime in my lifetime, that there might not be horrific traffic on the way to work every day. Uh, but, yeah, other than, uh, I mean, I've lived in cities where the traffic's worse i i mean it's bad here but it could be a lot worse i know that but it's really it just drives me sa- insane is all the construction because i feel like that is like the number one contributor to all of it
2: and luke as somebody who lives off state street do you know why it's under construction
1: uh so they're doing a couple different projects so Um, they were expanding lanes at at State and and, uh, Veterans Memorial, which was a very interesting project. And so they've taken out, you can't turn left anymore there. So they have to like U-turn lanes. Uh, Now they're doing something crazy that I don't understand. Uh, Actually, Jackie's husband, Cook, has explained this to me like three different times. and I still don't understand (laughs) what they're doing at State and Collister. Somehow they're like trying to change how the road goes or take a current. I I still don't quite understand it. Um, But I think their next plan is after they uh, sufficiently mess up that part State Street is then to redo the uh, intersection at Glenwood and State, which is apparently another like really busy uh, intersection there. So they're just going to make their way down State, uh, ruining people's lives as they go.
2: Well, listen, we could do a whole segment just on State Street, but I will just say it's not just about road widening on State Street. There is a long term plan, and the plan is to create um, high speed bus transit along there. So that is what the long term vision of why they're widening those areas along State Street.
1: I was unaware. Of that but yes most the, people are <laughs> the buses also cause traffic problems because they don't really get out of the lane and they just kind of stop and traffic backs up for like a mile and you're just like what is happening
2: yeah it, that's not how it's supposed to function long term but i think that's i think <laughs> most people who navigate state street are just like why is this happening because it's it's not clear to most folks so that's something uh that's that's good to keep an eye on that maybe this is moving more towards those desired mass transportation options in the long run especially for the those east-west commuters um the other being change I think for transportation in Boise recently has been the arrival of electric scooters. Have you ridden those yet? I have not.
1: Uh, I have, and I think I've told you my experience. So like, I saw these, and I was like, these things are dumb. Uh, and then uh, my car was in the shop, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to ride one of these things home. And by the way, I, I live like five or six miles from campus, so it was not my best idea. But you know, I rode this thing for like 40 minutes until it, yeah, all the way up the green belt, until it ran out of battery. But this is the thing I really loved about it. It ran out of battery, like about a mile from my house. I was like, all right, this just lives here now. And I walked away. And that was, that was not against the rules. It was actually what I was supposed to do. And that was my favorite part (laughs) was I no longer had to be responsible for it.
2: Yes. I wish I had a dollar for every friend who's like, I think scooters are stupid. And then (sighs) fill in the blank. They were late for a meeting or their car wasn't, wouldn't start in the morning or they were out with friends drinking and they just got on one and found how fun they are. They're super fun.
1: Well, I mean, and it's, it's a one-way trip. Like, every other thing that you rent, you have to return. This, you just leave somewhere. Yeah. And so, like that's, like, that's the best part.
2: It's a very low-responsibility form of transportation.
1: Yes, and coming from, like, I have lots of responsibility in other areas, so it's nice <laughs> not to have something I have to be responsible for.
0: Did you follow all the rules? Did you wear a helmet? Uh, No comment. (laughs) Yeah, so uh,
2: obviously not everybody loves scooters quite the way I do. We um, have a lot of folks who are worried about people not riding them responsibly, maybe too fast on sidewalks downtown and not being safe with them or throwing them in the river. We're seeing that happen as well. Um, The other (laughs) thing- (laughs) People have thrown them in the river? Oh, yes. Um, It's part of their business plan, these e-scooter companies. They know that there are going to be some that are vandalized, right? and, of course, they're going to be thrown in rivers and on roofs. We don't recommend that, I, but I it's happening. I do really
0: enjoy when I see them, like, clear up in the north end, like, at people's homes. Yes, And I'm yes. just like, oh, someone has to come up here and, like...
2: I, li- I, I live in the north end, and there's usually one or two in my my yard every morning. So um, it's a good thing I like them. The other thing that I want to keep an eye on, I think, when it comes to, to e-scooters, and for that matter, autonomous vehicles, is one of their selling points, I think, to to decision makers is that they're going to be sort of low carbon options, um, particularly when we compare them with like two stroke engines or motorcycles or car traffic. But I think a lot depends on whether or not they displace people who might have walked or biked, or if they're displacing car traffic. And of course, they still have to be charged, which takes electricity and, um, you know, electricity usually puts, when we produce electricity, it puts carbon into the atmosphere. So let's just be something that I think cities are really going to keep an eye on as we move forward.
0: Yeah, but I mean, if it does, like, take out some of those short car rides? And that's that's a benefit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And as a user, they are fun and convenient and easy.
1: <laughs> well, and uh, Jen, I don't know if you're aware of how uh, like these things are charged right but people get paid like it's kind of like the, the shared kind of people get paid to drive around and pick these things up and take them home and recharge them so uh, i think the economic impact on that end is basically like a second job that doesn't really require like a whole lot of time and energy because you pick them up you charge them overnight you drop them back off in the morning so uh, i think that's going to be an interesting i mean essentially part-time job for some people and whether or not that's going to have a positive economic impact on you know our our community or not
2: yeah will it displace uber drivers a lot of folks who are sort of involved in the gig economy so sort of some things to keep an eye out next time you hop on one of those birds or limes uh i think we are out of time here at the big tent um thank you so much for joining us uh hope you tune in next week for public affairs thursday here at radio boise so from me and luke and jackie we hope you have a great week bye-bye